Hello and welcome to the Pet Talk podcast, the official podcast of Alicia Pet Care Center Animal Hospital in Mission Viejo, California. My name is Tim Wheaton. I am the podcast host, also the office manager and marketing manager of Alicia Pet Care Center. So this is the second part of the topic of spaying and neutering your pet with Dr. Matthew Wheaton, where we were very in-depth but wanted to make sure that we didn't do any kind of edits for time and kind of pulling back on the information that we really wanted to make sure we got out to all of you. So this is a second full episode, the second part of that conversation with Dr. Wheaton about spaying and neutering. So without further ado, let's get right back into it with Dr. Wheaton. So one of the most pervasive myths that I hear on this Spain neuter situation is oftentimes a suggestion that comes from the breeder of the individual's pet. Mm-hmm. So they will tell them your female dog that I am now selling to you should be allowed to go through one heat cycle. This is a pervasive myth. I don't honestly know entirely what the there's various things that they say as for why you would want to do that. But you don't want to do that. That is not sensible. There is only one reason why you would even consider that. And we, we I have had this conversation with several people, clients over the years. But when we weigh it all out, it doesn't make sense anymore. So let's say you had a female dog that had a very small vulva that was tucked up into a cave because it was not oriented in the proper direction. And there was excessive skin that was kind of around the vulva, creating a cave-like environment. Okay? This is, is a... Is there a medical term for this? this or There is a medical term. I'm ready. The medical term is cryptic vulva, mm-hmm. which basically means a vagina in a cave. So the problem with that vagina in a cave is that the cave is very moist. It will grow a lot of bacteria. Constant large numbers of bacteria can sometimes overwhelm the local immune system at the hole that's basically, you know, from the inside out of this animal, allowing bacteria to go into the dog and then creating a urinary tract infection. And the problem with that urinary tract infection is that the predisposing factor never goes away. And so you have a frequent recurrent bladder infection story with a dog who has a cryptic vulva. So I think some cases there is a valid kind of thought experiment to have. What could we possibly do to minimize this problem? Well, if you allow your female dog to go through a heat cycle, the vulva will develop. It will get bigger. It will get really big when they're in heat, like a little baboon. But it will shrink down somewhat after that, and it will still be larger after the first heat cycle than before the first heat cycle. Think of puberty. There's things that change permanently. So in theory, the vulva getting bigger will bring that vulva more out of the cave and will minimize the risk of that recurrent bladder infection story. That is not valid to switch out for an 8% risk of cancer. 
I don't, I don't think it's a fair trade-off, especially because you could do a surgery to remedy the cryptic vulva. You can't necessarily take an 8% cancer risk and half of that is going to be malignant. So 4% of the dogs that you allow go through that heat cycle to increase their vulva size and remedy that issue, and they're going to die of a malignant cancer that you could have prevented. So that just does not seem like a fair trade-off to me. And that is why it just doesn't really make sense to allow any dog to go through a first heat cycle, regardless, because you can fix the cryptic vulva story. That's a surgery that I actually enjoy doing because it's detail work and, and it's very rewarding because the dogs that need it ask for it. They have multiple bladder infections. You do the surgery and then their bladder infections stop happening. So, but that is probably the most pervasive myth. And I would imagine that that's possibly one of the reasons why they would say allow it to go through one heat cycle, but that doesn't mean any, make any sense to me. So are they saying that as a preventative measure to that becoming an issue or are, are do you think that is something that they are saying to people who, well, could they even know that that is going on with that female puppy? You know, you're opening the door for me to say something that I love saying and I'm fine being on record to do this. You're welcome. Okay. But you know, it's, it's tough because we, as veterinarians, we went to school for four years of undergrad. We worked really hard to actually allow ourselves to be accepted at the top of the heap by our hard work to get into vet school. We did four years of vet school, which is basically the the most intense college experience that you could ever imagine. Very difficult, lots of learning, brain exploding kind of stuff. And then a lot of us, every every veterinarian, I'm proud to say at Alicia Pecker Center has done an additional one year internship, which is usually somewhere around 80 hours a week of us kind of getting huge numbers of patients under our belt and lots of additional learning. And then what we have learned and are saying as medical fact gets compared in a false equivalency to what a breeder recommends to someone that is potentially buying a puppy from them. And a breeder, the baseline of what got them to be what they are. Now, I will say the disclaimer, there are incredible breeders out there. There are very conscientious breeders out there. And some of these people may have some good insight to be giving to their uh, customers. But the way that a breeder develops a long positive history from reviews or whatever is by allowing their animals, their dogs to have sex in the backyard and then they sell those puppies to people. That is how they garner their longevity of being a reputable breeder, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. It is a false equivalency. They oftentimes give out completely opposite information of what is true and right. And they frame it in a way of your veterinarian is going to recommend that you spay your dog and you absolutely should not do that. You should allow them to go through a heat cycle despite all of these things that are very, very easy to find if you just do a tiny bit of reading. So I know I went off the rails a little bit there, not really. but it's a little frustrating to 
have that kind of scenario go on because again, the pet owner, you know, they're going to this breeder that they have done their research to find and they think that they're awesome because they have a nice website and not that many negative reviews and they give them way more credit than they should. So that I think, you know, sometimes we find out about the the status of the recommendations of the breeders, I should say, um, based on what the people relayed to us, our clients relayed to us at that first couple of visits with their new puppy. Mm-hmm. So, OK, so let's talk about the real brains in this whole situation, which are a lot of the researchers. And there are some really cool topics to talk about, honestly, because this is not your this is not your father's podcast. Oh, and wow. I and and when I say that to you, Timothy, I'm being real, as many people may or may not know, as some of you may know, Timothy is my brother. That's why our voices sound very similar. And our father was a veterinarian. Our father, if he was doing this podcast right now, would not be talking about the next topic that we are going to discuss because it didn't it was completely unknown at that time. So at that time being the 80s, 70s. Yeah, he was he graduated from UC Davis ding, vet school in 1955. So anyways, the first study actually that I want to discuss is the one study that I think really messes with people's heads that go down the road of reading everything out there. And it's the study that was done in Europe not too long ago that looked at a bunch of Rottweilers. In Europe, there's a lot more intact dogs there than there are in the United States. They have a little bit better responsibility on the pet ownership there, a lot less roaming dogs. So they don't have the population issue, overpopulation issue, nearly as badly as we do here. But they have done a really big study on a large number of dogs, and they basically divided them into four different subgroups and they didn't really look at you know a whole lot of variables that you know might have changed things where they lived what they fed their dogs etc etc but they just kind of carved this large number of rottweilers into four different groups and they measured how long they lived and the the way that it turned out is that the There were neutered male dogs. There were unneutered male dogs, intact female dogs, spayed female dogs. Hmm. The intact female dogs had the longest lifespan of all of the groups, which is going to mess with people because what that tells us, which is what we've already known on the human side, is that ovaries are somehow life protective. There is something about having ovaries that extends a person or a dog's life, hormonal influences, something. And that is going to fly in the face of everything else. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I've had some very thoughtful clients in, in our practice that have had this long conversation with me and, and it puts people into a yucky place. So I think if you are looking at everything, there is that kind of, uh, do I do this or not? Because I could have my dog live longer, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm recently been managing a, a situation like this in a nine-year-old, I believe, German shepherd that now has had three different s- surgeries to remove mammary tumors. And, you know, finally on this last go around, 
the dog was spayed basically. And, but that it's, you know, it's kind of water under the bridge at this point. And, and this dog has had multiple opportunities to kind of take the wrong path. The owner has been extremely on top of it and she's trying really hard, but none of this really would be happening if the dog was spayed younger. So mm-hmm. it's possible. I mean, you know, maybe these dogs in Europe are having multiple surgeries for breast cancer and they're very on top of it. But that, I, you know, I think that's a thing to consider too, is like, is it, is it really, is it fair to give them a, a longer lifespan with the fact that they've had, you know, two or three or four surgeries to remove breast cancer? So anyways, that's, that's something that I think, you know, I want to just make sure that I'm not hiding any information that's out there and telling the, the, the real story, but there is that. So anybody that's dead set on keeping their female dog intact, there may be a benefit to you on that, but you may have to deal with the pyometra story uh, eventually or breast cancer. And so on to these other studies, four studies that have come out over the last 10 years or so that looked at certain breeds of dogs. So there was a a study that was done in Rottweilers out of Europe, and I think it was part potentially a, a, a small part of that other study I just mentioned. And there was a, I believe, two studies on Vislas, and there was one study that was done on Golden Retrievers by, I'll let you do the ding this time, UC Davis. Ding! Yes. So my own alma mater did a landmark study on Golden Retrievers that was probably the scariest, honestly, of all of these stories that came out of these studies. All these studies looked at the consequence of early spay and neuter in dogs. And the study out of Davis reflected what the other studies showed, which was basically you have a negative consequence of spaying or neutering dogs that are young, that are still growing. So if you do it before six months, you're going to basically change the growth. Now, the 10 years ago, our at Alicia Pet Care Center, our recommendation was basically what everybody else in the United States was saying is at, you know, four to five months of age, maybe six months at the most, we should spay or neuter your dog. And we've been saying that. And even younger than that, you know, a lot of the shelters, unfortunately, have this consequence of just what they're trying to do. Rescue groups as well. We have to get those dogs spayed and neutered because giving a waiver for an owner to like, that's you can adopt this dog but you have to get it spayed and you have to do it by a certain time that fails. That just does not work because people don't do it. And then the dog has a litter and then you just completely jacked up your numbers because you now have 10 dogs out there and you were trying to just, you know, decrease the overpopulation issue. You just made it worse. So everybody's going to spay and neuter their dog if they're in rescue or shelter work to get these and and cats as well to get these animals out there already sterilized and not going to add to the problem. So that group would kind of just set aside and just say, it's just the nature of how it has to work when you're dealing with an overpopulation issue, stray, stray pets, homeless pets, et cetera. On an owned pet that's intact, this is where, you know, there may be some deviation out there because not every veterinarian is going to have read these studies Not every veterinarian is going to have changed their protocols with these studies because quite honestly, it's quite inconvenient for us to do so. It's much better to just, okay, your puppy or kitten is done with its vaccines at four months. That's a different podcast entirely. And now they're kind of finished with their puppy series. They're 
They don't really need to see us again, but we're going to do the spay in the next month. So let's just do your lab work now and come back within the next month and we'll spay and neuter your dog. It's much easier to do it that way for a veterinary hospital. It's very inconvenient to say we're going to have the big, long conversation and and do something that you're going to hear some, you know, different way of doing things. And on a male dog, we would recommend, honestly, that they be allowed to grow up until about a year's year of age before they're neutered and a female dog we recommend right at eight months to preempt that first heat cycle. So I didn't get to the the fun part of the study. I jumped ahead. The fun part of the study was if you spay or neuter a growing puppy and it's still early in its growth, what will happen is you change the way that that pet grows. They grow differently. And interestingly, they grow dogs grow taller. So they, they have Hmm. longer limbs. It would be the opposite of what I would guess, but they grow taller. And what that does is it stretches out the knee joint. It literally elongates the limbs. The joint can't really elongate. So what it does is it makes the bones longer and it stretches tendons and ligaments tighter. And that has a consequence Because what that does is it increases the risk of torn ACLs, anterior cruciate ligaments. People have heard about this in in the human population. It is really common. It doubles the risk. If you do that uh, spay or neuter young, it doubles the risk of a torn ACL. A torn ACL for a 80-pound dog is going to result in a recommendation for a, a surgery called a TPLO, a TPLO surgery, most places in the country is going to set an owner back about $5,000. And even with doing that surgery, the dog is basically guaranteed a life of mild arthritis at the minimum. And you also have a 60% chance of the other side tearing. So it's a, it's a really significant issue, not life-threatening, of course, but a quality of life issue. If you have all of your patients, dog patients being spayed or neutered at three or four months, five months, you're going to have a very healthy population of animals coming in for, for torn cruciates. And it's something that we see here probably, you know, we have a five doctor practice. So we have a lot of people that come in, but we probably, we probably diagnose two ACLs, maybe three per week in our patient population. So it's a, it's a frequent thing and it's, it's not something that you can really prevent if the leg gets stretched out. And so that's a, that's a big deal. So doubling the ACL risk, if you spay them or neuter them young, you also in all these studies increase the hip dysplasia risk. And that that's kind of different for different breeds of dogs, but you increase that risk as well. The golden retriever study out of Davis has some special characteristics about it, primarily related to the fact that golden retrievers are cancer factories. They have a 60% chance chance of getting cancer at some point in their life. That's all genetically based. And in the golden retriever study, they saw a correlation between an increase in with the, the dogs that were spayed and neutered young. Interestingly, I'd say somewhat oddly, I don't really understand the science behind this. Truly. I don't think anyone does. But you increase the risk of hemangiosarcoma, um, which is a very, very aggressive tumor type, usually affecting the spleen. It's, it's most of the time a terminal illness. 
and osteosarcoma, which is a very aggressive bone tumor. Bone cancer in, in dogs is a debilitating disease that's frequently terminal as well. So that's a bad thing. We don't want to increase cancer. I mean, I think honestly, every veterinarian would say that. The problem with that, again, is that we we have things that we do very early on that we might see as kind of a, a normal course of a dog or cat's life that we have to be thoughtful about. And we have to make sometimes tough decisions to to act in the best interest of the patient, even if it might make things a little inconvenient for us as a business or it might even make things a little inconvenient for a pet owner. If we're being advocates for our pets, I think we have to make sure that we tell the full story to these people. So those are the the recent studies. These are all things that you can find online. There is a link on our website to a write-up that I did a couple years ago that has citations for these studies and links, et cetera, et cetera. So www.mypetsdoctor.com is the website. If you want to go and do some reading, that's a pretty big website with a lot of articles and it's it's something that you can find on our website there. So that leads in to I think the I think I think we get the picture. Do we get the picture at this point that it's it's important it's to important spay and neuter your yes. pets for a number of different reasons. If you don't do it, you are basically embracing some negative consequences that are very 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 likely to play out. And so we've talked about how you actually do that timing wise. And I would say just one brief thing, like if you worked with a rescue group and you got your puppy or usually it's a puppy situation and and you got the dog and it wasn't yet spayed and the rescue group was working with you to say, you know, you need to have the dog spayed or neutered at a certain time. I'm a big fan of of adhering to contracts. So that's basically what you've done. If you've, you've gotten a rescue dog that's not yet neutered or spayed is you signed an agreement that you were going to do it at a certain time. I I think you should adhere to that contract. I'm not a fan of causing big arguments with rescue groups, uh, owners that recently adopted a dog from them, um, arguing these points. Uh, It's not the best necessarily, but pet insurance is actually a thing that you can get. You know, it offsets the financial cost associated with a torn ACL. Sometimes the rescue groups are amenable to a change, but I think I would approach that rescue group very gently. And so I am not a fan of breaking contracts. Okay. We have mentioned several disease issues, problems, et cetera, that can come from not spaying or neutering your pets. And I want to just make sure that we give you an opportunity of heading some of these financial hits off at the pass. Get pet insurance. Just do the sensible thing. You need to just get pet insurance. You know that when you get a car, you get car insurance. Even though you don't know that you're going to have a car crash, you assume that you will not. Yet you gladly, most of the time, pay your insurance knowing that you have protection financially from some possible issue. Every single pet is going to have a car crash. Every single one of them. They are oftentimes going to have multiple car crashes and they are going to be unpredictable and expensive. And you can't necessarily just total it and move on to the next one without a significant negative consequence emotionally to your family, etc. 
you need to get pet insurance if you have a pet. The uh, Our favorite insurance company is called Pet Plan. It's gopetplan.com. That is not because we own stock in the company. We do not sell it. Uh, it's a third party. Again, I'm not a stockholder in this company. I am very passionate about protecting my clients and patients. And I think the pet plan offers a very extensive coverage that doesn't have a lot of hidden things that are negatives for you guys. So I'm, I'm a big fan of pet plan, but there are several other good companies that are out there. If you are interested in getting pet plan, you can get a little discount by using the referral code PRC 10, which gets you a discount off of your um, insurance plan. Okay. I, I will say for those of you who are social media savvy, because we do uh, love pet plan so much, you should look up pet plan on Twitter. Uh, if their username is pet plan, they do pretty much every day. I think their pet plan claim of the day or something like that, that shows how much money they paid out to a pet owner to cover their dog or cat for whatever situation it had. And it's, it's pretty mind blowing sometimes when I see those alerts on how much money people are getting back and recovering for, um, sometimes very significant as Dr. Wheaton was saying it quote unquote car crashes that your pet may get into. So sorry, just wanted to make sure everybody could see that. Yeah. And I, I actually do have pet insurance on our family pets um, primarily I got kind of woken up to this issue when we decided to get a golden retriever. Funny enough, right? I, we said it has a 60% cancer risk and golden retrievers are the most common breed for veterinarians to have because their personality is, is so reliable and great. And I told my wife that, you know, I just anticipate that we're going to have to use the services of another veterinarian at some point for, our golden retriever named Fezzik Hodor. But yeah, when Fezzi gets cancer, if that happens, I'm going to end up having to go seek a specialist care to treat him. And I don't really want to expose myself financially to that and make it so that I have to make a decision between do I treat him for his cancer, which most of the time they do really well with treatment, or do I not and have that, you know, be a financial decision? So I'm trying to not be a hypocrite as well, but I, I'm very glad that I have pet insurance because I've actually already used it a couple of times for um, several of my several of my pets. So back to our normal topic or our topic of spaying and neutering. I think we're at the point where we can talk about the actual procedure, huh? Yes. OK, so. We are talking about Alicia Pet Care Center here, not the entire world, California, Orange County, whatever. Everybody does it differently. But at Alicia Pet Care Center, when we have a procedure that's actually under anesthesia, it's pretty much all going to be the same high level of care. That goes for a male cat neuter, which takes probably about, I don't know, two two to five minutes of doctor time or a uh, hardest procedure being an intact female dog who's overweight, you know, a, a eight year old 
golden retriever that weighs 100 pounds that should weigh 70 that's getting spayed is probably the double black diamond of, of reproductive surgeries that we do. Every one of those cases and everything in between is all going to kind of have the same protocol here. So everybody is compelled to do lab work as a pre-anesthetic test to make sure the liver and kidney function is normal, that the pet's not anemic or has any other condition. We're making sure that the pet can tolerate anesthesia and should heal nicely and come through the surgery okay. We then have the animal come in, uh, drop off in the morning. They typically go home in the evening and they end up getting an injection of a pre-medication which is a pain medication that's somewhat somewhat sedating sometimes. It takes the edge off of them, definitely makes them a little sleepy, a little more cooperative for them getting an intravenous catheter placed or an IV. So we start an IV on them. Uh, everyone has an IV, which is really important so that we have access to a vein. We don't have to find a vein in the middle of the procedure if there's a problem or we need to give some kind of supportive medicine, et cetera, et cetera. But we also need a place to give intravenous fluids. So that IV is started and then the patient will be anesthetized. We here use a combination of midazolam, which is like Valium and propofol, which is probably most of you have heard of propofol with the unfortunate demise of Michael Jackson. It's not a very good sleep aid, but it is an incredible anesthetic and it's a very safe anesthetic. So those two medications are given as an injection that will quickly anesthetize our dog and cat patients, which allow for them to have an endotracheal tube placed in their trachea, in their throat. That provides an airway so that we can give them inhalant gas anesthetic. And the gas anesthetic that we use here is called sevoflurane. Sevoflurane is well recognized as the safest gas anesthetic out there. Um, it's frequently used in pediatric human patients, preemies that you know would have to go under anesthesia to have some s- interventional surgical procedure done. Um, Sevoflurane would be the gas that that human hospital would use. It's extremely safe. And that is basically the anesthesia side of things. Once a patient's anesthetized, then, you know, we give them supportive things in lots of different categories. They are getting heat support through a heated surgical table. Oftentimes we use something called a bear hugger, which is a forced air, heated air that's pumped around them um, through kind of like a sort of a fancy pillow in a way that heat keeps their temperature core temperature normal, which is really critical for them to have a, a safe anesthetic episode. The patients are given intravenous fluids, which is really critical for normal function of blood pressure oriented cardiovascular status. We're supporting their, their normal flow of blood and circulation If you don't do that, oftentimes the patients become low with their blood pressure and then that's not good for the kidneys and it it increases mortality. So everybody gets intravenous fluids and we typically will do an antibiotic injection at the beginning of the procedure and that's probably it as far as the, the medicine side of things with support, but they're also hooked up to a machine that is a monitoring device in, in the days of my experience at my father's veterinary hospital. So we're going back to like 
1989, 1990, uh, was very high tech. Dad had a one piece of equipment that he was using during his spays and neuters and any other anesthetic procedure. And it was a uh, small little machine that went into the breathing line that would measure the breaths. So it would beep when the animal breathed. Mm -hmm. No blood pressure, no EKG, no pulse oximetry, no temperature regulation, no temperature support, no intravenous catheter, no IV fluids. I mean, it was amazing that these animals survived, honestly. And no but, tech support. I don't rem- I remember being in there with him during many surgeries and there was uh, not he, another tech always there, in there. There really, I mean, a lot of t- back in the late eighties, there weren't a lot of registered techs, you know, you'd have True. a, you'd have a doctor's assistant. Um, but oftentimes in a small one doctor shop, like he had, it would be, you know, the receptionist would come back and assist him temporarily mm-hmm. on whatever he needed. Um, you know, obviously if he's sterile in surgery, somebody has to adjust the anesthetic. I mean, you know, it wasn't the perfect, um, scenario and, and there were the inevitable negative consequences to some pets with that too. So anyways, back to the current time period and not the dark ages. Um, these machines monitor so much. All of those things that I mentioned, pulse oximetry, end tidal CO2, which is how much carbon dioxide they're breathing out, temperature, pulse, respiration, pulse oximetry, blood pressure. And blood pressure being probably the most important one to keep in the right uh, ranges because it can can really be a, a harbinger of problems coming. So that allows us to make changes and we can make changes very easily because we already have an IV catheter in place. We have fluids going. We can easily administer uh, anesthetic supportive medications to make sure that we have a successful outcome. The surgery, of course, is being done by skilled veterinarians that have lots of experience that are using proper equipment and techniques and not inexpensive, cheap surgery equipment or suture material. You know, to some extent, no expense is spared because we're really just going to do this the exact same way that I would spay my own dog. I'm going to extend that to everybody else. I'm going to make sure that everybody gets the top-notch care. There's really no way that at Alicia Pet Care Center that you can kind of downgrade that care. And that gives us a good outcome almost every single time. We have, you know, fantastic uh, experiences and the animals wake up very quickly and smoothly. And then they're able to walk out of here, you know, two or three hours later because we're not using anesthetics that last all day and, really spin the animal sideways so that it has to, you know, have a a prolonged anesthetic recovery period. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how it goes down. So the final things, the final touches for Alicia Pet Care Center patients, we do recommend an e-collar or an Elizabethan collar for every patient going home so that they don't chew their sutures open and have a second procedure. We send everybody home with pain medication one way or the other that comes with the package. The, I will say the e-collar or Elizabethan collar, most of you will know as the cone of shame. Yes. The dreaded lampshade, which everybody hates, but Mm -hmm. it definitely really helps to make it so that we don't have extra drama. So that's how it goes. I won't go into depth on a, on this other story. It's for another podcast, I suppose, but of how I went through this period of enlightenment kind of with my own stance on spaying and neutering and how important it is. And, but that has led to us 
being compelled to offer a very inexpensive price tag with this high-end procedure that we're doing. And that has led down the road of eventually us launching our program uh, that we call Practically Free Spay and Neuter, right? Yes, PFSN for short. We call it PFSN for short internally, but Practically Free Spay and Neuter is a program that is offered by Alicia Pet Care Center, and it's only for new clients. But if a new client kind of hears about this program and they're ready to spay or neuter their pet, we will allow them to come in as a new client. They can tap into that high-quality spay and neuter service at a ridiculously low low price. Um, we basically have the same prices as the high volume, low cost spay and neuter facilities in our area, doing it well below what it actually costs us to do. But we feel really passionate about this. So we, we feel good about offering this as a service. We want to help everybody get to that point of um, allowing them to reduce, do their part to reduce the pet overpopulation issue. And it just, it's a better scenario for the pets overall. So we feel good about offering a low cost associated with that, but we're also willing to pretty much like have you come in and in a way if you end up staying with us you can get that spay or neuter for free so what happens with that program is if you come in and let's say you spay your chihuahua who weighs 10 pounds less than 20 pound dog spay i think at this point runs somewhere around 165 maybe 170 dollars for that whole ball of wax. You do have to get pre-anesthetic blood tests, which the prices are going to vary on that, but it's roughly going to be around $100. And that price that you pay for the spay, let's just say it's $150 for the sake of this conversation. You take your pet home, you pay us $150, you have a fantastic experience. You get to, to some extent, experience Alicia Pet Care Center and, and the high quality that we have and the friendly helpful staff and all of that good stuff should show through. We'll invite you to come back for a second visit. That second visit, that first exam is free and you get to try us out on a normal visit for whatever it is that you're needing to do. It might be vaccine boosters. It might be that your pet has a problem. Let's say it's a itchy dog. That's kind of our normal you know, half of our day every day is itchy dogs. So you come back in within a year of having your dog spayed or neuter, your cat spayed or neuter, and you will have a credit of that $150 that you spent on your female chihuahua, right? We're back to that example. You'll have a credit of $150 to work against for things that do not leave the hospital. So that gives you an opportunity to do a wellness blood test, a vaccine Uh, any sort of testing, treatment in the hospital, anything that's not a tangible thing that's leaving the hospital, can't get pet food, can't get flea control um, that's leaving the hospital, things like that you cannot get. But for services, you basically are getting, I shouldn't say basically, practically free spay and neuter means that you are getting that service done practically free because you are getting that as a credit for services on a future visit at the hospital, you have a term of a year to take advantage of that, I believe. Yes. And you can find out more about that. There's a lot of, you know, ins and outs at 
practicallyfreespays.com. There is a lot of fine print on this particular procedure or let's say program that we're offering. There's a lot of fine print. I encourage you, if you're looking at it, to look at the fine print page, which is very easily found on that website. But because we are offering this service, we really are only going to offer it to a select uh, sort of slice of the animal population, which means if you bring a dog in that is in heat, which makes it a much more difficult procedure, by the way, more risky, it's harder, it costs more money. A dog who only has one testicle that's in the scrotum, that's called a cryptorchid dog. Those dogs are much more difficult. We Those, those animals don't apply to this. It's really just a standard, healthy, normal dog. No pregnant females, no in-heat females, no cryptorchid males, um, no eight-year-old obese golden retrievers are going to be coming in under this program. They can still come in for that high-quality spay. You will still pay low prices for that service, but you will not have the credit on your account that makes it be a practically free thing for us. So just keep that in mind. It works out really, really well for the people that uh, embrace it. And uh, we have a very, very high retention rate on the people that come in because they can see right off the bat that Alicia Pecker Center is a different hospital. We have a different sort of philosophy overall. We really are trying to help our community out. We don't just say it. We actually have lots of things that we do. Um, we put our money where our mouth is, basically, and we'll pretty much pay you to spay your dog in a way. Mm-hmm. Like, that's exactly what we're doing. We, we feel that passionately about not... Uh, adding to the problem and allowing people to have a reasonable way to spay or neuter their pets. And we don't want that to be a financial thing that, that then adds to the pet overpopulation issue. So we feel really passionate about that. So that is practically free spay and neuter. So I, I think we have hit this topic from every single possible side. Don't you think? Yes. We will not have to do a part three on spaying (laughs) and neutering. I don't think (laughs) there probably are additional questions that we really didn't cover, but, um, I guess, you know, feel free to, uh, email them into us, but that will be for another podcast. I guess we'll, we'll leave it open for a possible future part three. Yes. We can, we can revisit this if there's a lot of additional things that people want to know, but I think, the thing that we like to do at Alicia Pecker Center is to logically think about things and problem solve. So in the spirit of that, we can absolutely see that there is a huge reason to spay or neuter your pets. There are significant negative consequences that you are embracing by not doing so that you will have to deal with that are going to be financially negative and potentially negative for the health of your pet and can potentially lead to a terminal illness. So we've made it pretty clear. We've allowed for our patients to additionally have finances not really be the determining factor on a pet owner acting out the need to spay or neuter their pets. And that hopefully will compel you to do the right thing. And I hope that some of the people that are listening to this right now are future clients of Alicia Pecker Center that can tap into the Practically Free Spay and Neuter program 
Um, but I, I do feel very strongly about making sure that all of our choices that we make for our pets, we're, we're really important in their lives. Obviously we make the make or break their longevity and their quality of life. And there's lots of things that you can do or by not, you know, making decisions in their best interest, you can sometimes not do stuff that will lead to negative consequences. So we're setting you up for success here, people. I mean, we really have, I think in these two episodes done as much as we possibly can to make this black and white and to make it super clear to you and to provide also our community with a, a way to do this that basically doesn't even cost you any money. So I'm very proud of what we have here and the way that we offer our services to people. And I think that's pretty much all I need to say on this. Yep. So thank you very much again for sitting with us and taking so much time on your day off, Dr. Wheaton. Oh, I'm yes. It's what I wanted to do. Yeah. (laughs) I think they have that. One of the hustle kind of things is no days off. So you are living that dream today. No days off. Yes. I wish I would have started my no days off by doing a little bit of stand up paddling in the ocean, Mm. maybe trying to see some dolphins out there, but alas, you're in the office working and doing a podcast. Yeah. So thank you again. And, um, we will have another episode, not about spaying and neutering coming out to you all, uh, within the next couple weeks as well. See you on the flip side. Okay. And that concludes our second episode and our conversation in parentheses for now about spaying and neutering your pet and our stance on that and our opinions on the importance of that for controlling the pet population. Again, we are always welcome to your feedback on our episodes and our topics. You can send in new ideas for conversations you would like us to have or questions you have to wecare at mypetsdoctor.com. Or you can send us anything on our Twitter account, which for the podcast is Pet Talk Podcast. Our Twitter for the hospital is APCC Vet which is the same username for our Instagram and even our Snapchat. You can find us on Facebook at Alicia Pet Care Center. And just let us know if you have any topics that you want to bring up or hear our doctors talk in depth on. We will be tackling some of those issues in future episodes to come again. And we are going to have another episode introducing you to our two newest doctors that will be coming out shortly as well. So thank you again for listening. And we hope that your pet and you are having a great week. And we will talk to you again soon.